Welcome back to Black History for White People, a podcast where we educate, resource, and challenge white people about black history. I'm Brad, and on today's show are my co-hosts Katina and Garen. In celebration of Black History Month, we will be releasing new episodes every Wednesday in February, so be on the lookout for twice the content this month. Today's topic is Fannie Lou Hamer. We walk through Fannie's life story, talk of events that shaped her character, discuss her impact on black and brown people in America, and in the conversation, discussing the importance and necessity that black women have in each of our lives. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Okay, y'all, I don't know anything about Fannie Lou Hamer, and I would bet that our listeners, most of our white listeners, have no idea who she is, so... Katina, you're going to have to really help us out here. What's set up the scene for her coming into the world and where she's from? And then we can we can start to dive into her life. Yes, indeed. Fanny was born the youngest of 20 children to her parents, Ella and James Lee Townsend, in 1917 to the backdrop of Jim Crow, rural Mississippi. They were a family of sharecroppers, which for black folks was another name for slavery. Fanny learned to pick cotton at the age of six to help her family survive. And they say that by the age of 13, Fanny was able to pick 200 to 300 pounds of cotton a day. She even outpicked men while inflicted with polio. Fanny had to stop attending school in the sixth grade to work to help her parents and family survive. But she loved to read and excelled in her reading and Bible knowledge at church. Little did she know that God was equipping her for greatness, and even her obstacles and hardship were stepping stones propelling her into the woman she'd become. She went on to marry Perry Pap Hamer, and they worked the same plantation 18 years. Life was hard, racism, you know, being poor, woman, black, but somehow Fanny and Pap imagined themselves beyond oppression and dreamt of starting a family. And I just think that's miraculous. Like, outside of all the stuff that they were experiencing, they actually, you know, wanted to have a family. But in 1961, and this is horrible, in 1961, she went in for medical care for a uterine tumor with a white doctor who thought it, would, thought it best to give her a hysterectomy. And so, yes, black and indigenous women were often subject to forced sterilization for the purpose of eugenics, a.k.a. population control. And unfortunately, this is still being practiced today. This is one of the reasons why the African-American community has a distrust of American medicine because there have been so many instances, including like the Tuskegee experiment of inflicting black men with syphilis, where we were basically lab rats to American medicine. And so even the most recent story is a couple of states over from Mississippi and Georgia at ICE facilities where Latina women have been subject to the very same sterilization. And a black woman actually came forward as a whistleblower. 
So Fannie got involved in the civil rights movement in the 50s, and she developed a passion for voting rights. In 1964, Fannie ended up at the uh, Democratic National Convention. She'd co-founded the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party to amplify the voting rights and voices of black Americans to counteract the racist Democratic Party of the day. And so she and fellow activists went to the convention to represent the state of Mississippi as official delegates of that party. Fannie gave her own personal testimony of police brutality, and she gave this amazing speech where she talked about being beaten. I mean, beaten so badly. And I'll let, I want Garen to kind of t- talk about this a little, this one a little bit more. But the convention, it was nationally televised and God had lent her the ears of the entire nation. President Lyndon B. Johnson was so afraid of the power of Fannie's speech that he deliberately interrupted the TV airwaves to deliver an impromptu speech about absolutely nothing. So all of the networks, of course, cut to the president, which is exactly what he wanted. Johnson feared that Fannie would mess up his chances of winning the election, the presidential election. But God provided, and even though Fannie's speech was cut from TV, it was still recorded, and her speech captivated the entire nation as networks broadcasted her powerful testimony later that evening anyway. Mm -hmm. Garen, you want to talk a little bit about the speech yeah, and so the there was kind of two instances of just kind of like oppression in Fanny's story that I just wanted to highlight. So the the first one is just the way that she wanted. Uh, actually, let me go even a third one because the third one I thought was interesting. You mentioned that she was started picking cotton at six, and part of what happened there was that the the landowner actually tricked her into picking cotton by offering her candy, mm-hmm. which he then said she owed him for. And then leverage that that debt to make her start picking cotton. So mm-hmm. just the the power and the injustice that land owners had under the sharecropping system was I mean just crazy. Yeah. And then she got into voting rights activism partially through like she went with I think it was like eighteen other people who all went together to go register to vote, and a mob somehow found out what was happening. And so there's this white mob of angry racist people gathered mm-hmm. outside the courthouse. So they go in and Fanny was so brave. She just walked through, out of the bus, through the mob and led the way of the those activists, or like, like they weren't really activists at that point. They just wanted to register to vote to the registrar who then this racist, racist registrar said, like even though there was room for all of them inside the building, said, we can only take two of you at a time through the process. So the other 16 are going to have to wait outside with the racist mob of white supremacists. But then she and the others all braved that a risk to themselves and attempted to register to vote. Mm-hmm. They did not succeed in registering to vote because there was a literacy test, which for white people right. would typically be like, you know, read this basic sentence just to show you can read. But for mm-hmm. the black people, it was read this obscure passage from the from the state constitution and then write it down copy it down perfectly, and right. then interpret what it says. And it's this obscure passage about de facto laws and, and stuff. And so they all failed because they, I mean, they're not constitutional lawyers, but that was like the standard for a black person to register to vote. And who knows, I mean, even if they had been constitutional lawyers, the registrar probably was not going to, there was probably no chance Absolutely. they were ever going to succeed. Yeah. So then they leave, and as they're leaving, 
having failed to register for, to vote, they're all deflated. And in the bus, Fanny just like starts to sing and lifts the spirits. And, and that's part of like what rose her to some prominence was just like the stories of how she remained steadfast and lifted the spirits of the people who had just like had their hopes dashed. Until then, uh, police officers, uh, a whole caravan of police officers pull the bus over and come on and they arrest the bus driver because the bus was too yellow. Mm. That was like, this was a bus driver who had driven this bus through this town for years and years and years. And Like the paint? On, the paint yellow? on the bus right. was that was the charge. He was arrested because the paint on his bus was too yellow. But really, I mean, obviously, it's just like the police officers oppressing him because he had the audacity of taking these people to register to vote. And then Fanny's the landlord, who Fanny had worked for for I think like eighteen years at that point, yep. found out that Fanny had tried to register to vote and said, "You can't live here anymore." But so he kicked her off the property. She stayed with a friend, and there were, I think there were like shots fired into the house of the there friend. Were. But he also said, he said, we aren't ready for that thing, in, for that in Mississippi. And, you know, she basically was like, well, I didn't register, I didn't try to register for you. I tried to register for myself. Mm-hmm. But then get this, her husband, she was kicked off. Her husband was forced to stay. Yep. So he forcibly separated them. He said if the husband leaves, he was going to like call on the debt that they owed them, yep. confiscate all their possessions, and probably do more than that. Mm-hmm. So the, the husband was forced to stay on the land, mm-hmm. continue to work, bringing all the harvests uh, until, the, until that cotton crop was done. And then once the cotton crop was done, he like harvested it. The landlord, landowner kicked him off anyways and took all of their stuff, Right, confiscated everything. Just like this crazy oppression that she faced. But then through that, she began more and more activism work, rose to prominence, and was arrested later on with, I think, seven activists who were trying to help register people to vote. She was so determined. She literally told the people when they, you know, she would. She told them, you'll see me every 30 days until I pass this test. Mm-hmm. She told them that, and she was repeatedly denied for her, her right to vote because she failed that Voter suppression mm-hmm. test is mm-hmm. what I call it. Yeah. yeah. Just the boldness. Uh, I love it. And the fact that she could like sing and have joy. And like she was a loving person who yeah. somehow was not corrupted by so much injustice and evil. She just remained inspiring. And it's really incredible. So then she, she and these other activists were arrested. Mm-hmm. And the police who arrested them found out that they were registering black people to vote. Mm-hmm. And when they found that out, they just inflicted all kinds of horrific abuse on them. They got two of the black prisoners who were also in the jail. They, the police forced those black prisoners, the black men, to whip and abuse Fanny and the other activists with a blackjack, which was like a strap of leather that had metal put in the end. And so they forced the one black prisoner to just physically abused Fanny until he was exhausted, like to the point of his own exhaustion, and then made the other one continue. This is in the 60s? Yeah, this would have been in the 60s, I think mid to late 60s. Yeah. So then the the police officers also decided, well, most of them decided that they were just going to disappear the activists into a river somewhere. Mm -hmm. They just decided they were going to kind of secretly kill them. But then there was one holdout police officer who also was racist and awful, 
and treated like participated in the abuse. So it's not that he was like, no, I'm too good of a person to kill them. He probably was just like afraid that there'd be some kind of consequence if it was found out. But there was one holdout police officer who wouldn't go along with just going and killing them quietly. And so they they couldn't be killed. But then meanwhile, at this time, Fanny was involved with SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and SNCC was, they didn't actually know where the activists were being held. So they got a bunch of their members to just start calling in on suspicion that this police precinct had them. And they put all this pressure on them just in, in hopes that that would keep them alive if they were there. So ultimately they did get out. But actually there was one other incident before they did that's worth mentioning. At one point the police officers just opened up and unlocked all the cells of the the jails and, and said, in the night, why don't you guys just get out of here? Mm-hmm. So gave Fanny and the other activists the opportunity to leave. And they they knew well enough to know not to go. Fanny said, like, mm-hmm. no, because she knew that it was a tactic that police used to unlock jail cells and then kill black people who were leaving saying that they were trying to escape. And so she had like the the wisdom and, and the training through SNCC to know not to not to go. So ultimately the police department then did let them go, partially because of the assassination of Medgar Evers and increased political pressure on them. And the FBI actually did an investigation and actually there were charges brought against the police officers, but then an all-white jury acquitted them. Then the speech that she gave, and this is where, where you had mentioned, she just recounted the experience and all this that had happened. She talks about how when she was in prison, when she was in jail, in that jail, that I guess the jailer's wife was there in, in the middle of the night or something like that or late. They brought her water. And and she she would say, you know, she talked to them and she was like, you know, y'all sure are nice. And the the woman and her daughter, they were like, yeah, you know, we're Christian. We're good Christian women. And so since they were good Christian women, she quoted them some scriptures. They left and never came back. I mean, she basically called them out for, you know, you bring us water basically in the in the dark of the night, but you're not standing up for what you know is right. You know that what you've done is wrong or what you've allowed or what, you, you know, you, you're basically, uh, what's the word? It's almost like you're Complicit. giving... Complicit. Yeah, you're giving this water for yourself and your own conscience, right. not because you actually care about us. Because if you actually cared about us, you'd be doing a lot more. Because they beat her so badly that she never really fully recovered Mm-hmm. from that beating. And as a matter of fact, they had a black man beat her. They basically like, if you don't beat her, then we gonna beat you. Mm-hmm. And he was forced to beat her. And then they beat her. And at one point she was being beaten so bad by one of the officers that her skirt began to rise up. And she was trying to just hold on to some kind of shred of decency and dignity for herself. And she was trying to pull it down and he raised it up. Like, he beat, I mean, it was just mm-hmm. brutal. And yeah, she carried those scars with her for life. Yeah, permanent loss of hearing. Yeah. Uh, organ damage. I'm yeah, sorry. and they brutalized her. You know, we're talking about Mississippi. Mississippi probably was one of the worst states, if not the worst state, during slavery and Jim Crow. Her daughter, she, they ended up adopting two girls. And one of her daughters died 
because they denied her, a hospital denied her care because of who she was. So she died from internal hem- hemorrhaging after a hospital refused to admit her because of Fanny's civil rights work. Hmm. Like Fanny, like she she had a nervous breakdown. Like we don't we talk about these big sheroines and heroines, you know, that a lot of times again white people will be like, you should be more like Martin Luther King. You should be, it's like, but they don't talk about the trauma. She had a nervous breakdown. Like she suffered. Mm. She suffered and she persevered. Mm. But she she had she she had great loss. She experienced great loss. Mm-hmm. You know, just out, out of all the ways that Fanny's life and legacy are just so powerful. What's so, it's powerful and it's just tra- tragic that she gave her literal life. The beatings at the hands of the police gave her health issues that she never recovered from. She suffered. At one point, she had a nervous breakdown. She died of heart failure from hypertension at the young age of 59. And she didn't live to see you know, our present reality, her co-activist, because she was uh, an inspiration to John Lewis, but her co-activist, John Lewis and C.T. Vivian, they just passed away this year and their work and legacy have helped to compel us to this time in history where we marched on and try to push on, push us a little further. I mean, just imagine that Fanny, she could be alive now mm-hmm. had it not been for the trauma the physical and emotional and mental trauma that she endured. And that's why I think it's just important that we talk about rest for people who are practicing resistance, specifically for African-American people, just for black women and women of color. And just what we're dealing with, you know, today in light of everything that's happened this week at the time of the recording at the Capitol in D.C., there's just so much trauma There's so much trauma. I was talking to my sister about that yesterday, just the generations of trauma that have been passed down like an inheritance to black generations. And Fanny's tombstone, it literally reads with one of her most famous quotes, I am sick and tired of being sick and tired. It sits in the dash between her birth date and her death date. And it's metaphorically on the tombstones of my black ancestors, and it'll be on the tombstones of our elders as we as they leave this place. It's, it'll be on mine, my children's, probably my children's children. And just the weight of that, as I'm talking to black women groups, sisters from all over the country, really all over the world, because I'm a part of several different groups of black women, the weariness and the fatigue, just identifying with having to continue to insert ourselves and resist and protest and advocate and stand up. You know, Malcolm X, who loved Fanny, Malcolm X, he loved Fanny like, you know, he had a lot of issues with the civil rights movement and specifically Martin Luther King and the the act of nonviolence and even Christianity in so many ways. Christianity failed him. And he loved and adored Fanny and said that she was one of the most amazing black preachers or preachers, you know, that he he had ever seen. So even he admired Fanny. And I mean, honestly, just, just to be real, just to keep it real, like Rosa Parks, she did a lot of amazing work. Like she worked on the rape of Recy Taylor, 
You might want to look that story up. And she did a lot of work outside of, you know, sitting on the back of the bus, what she's famous for. Rosa Parks was amazing. But they bypassed a, a young woman who had also experienced the same brutality for sitting on the back of the bus because of her image. She was pregnant mm-hmm. out of wedlock. And so Rosa kind of fit the, the, pro, the image. You know, there was this aesthetic. And Fannie Lou Hamer, she, you know, there were many black women that worked, did this work. Fannie Lou, Lou Hamer, she rose to prominence and she, she basically gained the respect of so many young people like John Lewis, but she wasn't someone who they would have chosen to be a representative, especially, I mean, considering she, she still was a woman. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? She, mm-hmm. sti- she still was a woman and there was no place for, there was no place for women, but there sure in the hell wasn't no place for black women because even black women were left out of the women's suffrage movement and we had to have a movement of our own. And so I think about like how Fanny was like, you know, country. She was uneducated, you know, and not because she wasn't brilliant and amazing. I mean, she knew her Bible better than a lot of most, many preachers of the day. And she was a fiery preacher. Like she would preach the gospel and she would use the scriptures to compel people to do what was right before the Lord. Like she she was amazing. I mean, I consider her a great theologian with a sixth grade education, right? Mm-hmm. And so she wouldn't have been, she she wouldn't have been chosen by black people of the day to be you know, to stand in, in, you know, and to be a spokesperson. But God gave her, mm-hmm. he made that way for her and gave her this fire and this passion for voters' rights to the point where she would just be repeatedly denied. I mean, just her, her fortitude, like sixth grade education, but still going back to take these impossible tests, being shot at, daughter being denied, being sterilized, being kicked off, the the plantation, abject poverty. Having their animals poisoned. I mean, just being beaten within an inch of her life. This woman, I don't I don't understand why we don't talk about her more. I don't understand why there isn't a Fannie Lou Hamer day. I don't know why she isn't the face. If I could think, you know, we 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 uplift all of these white women and you know, dignified ladies of distinction for suffrage. But Fannie Lou Hamer, to me, is like if if suffrage, if women's suffrage was a person, and if her face should be right up there, her name mm-hmm. should be right up there, everybody should know who she is because her life was, she lived an impossible life. Mm-hmm. You know, to the glory of God, like she she held on to her faith. I remember seeing a video of her because she loved the song, This Little Light of Mine, mm-hmm. and how she would sing. Like, I, I just watched videos of her singing and just just everything about her, her posture, her presence. It's it's so... I just see the... I see the Lord in 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 her work. And I, I, I mean, she was so passionate about her Christianity and her faith and how that was the foundation of why 
the foundation of her protest and her resistance and her advocation for voter rights and, you know, equality. Whereas many people would say, you know, there's this whole campaign against social justice warriors. You know, the whole, you know, American evangelicals are denouncing anybody that's Christian that's standing up for justice as if it's something, a smear to the Bible. It's a smear to the word, to the, to the name of the Lord. But Fannie Lou Hamer, she defies that Mm -hmm. and that she uses scripture at every turn to try to compel people to turn to the word that they claim to revere and hold so dear. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's a good idea to, you know, when we have this episode, so we're hoping to kind of get her name out and we want people to know who she is. But like, I mean, even those of you with white daughters, I mean, I have a white daughter and I would want her to know who Fanny, well, I would want my, do- my white daughter to be as much like Fanny Lou Hamer as anyone else. I mean, I would want my boys, my sons to act like that. Like, I just think what's scary to inconsistent, cowardly white men in that day was like strong, biblically sound black women. It was almost like their villain. And I just think like, yeah, what you said, I think they need to be uplifted more. Part of it is just, we need to talk about it more. And the bigger part of it is just that, you know, Man, need to know things, but like those of you that have daughters that are old enough to, I don't know, copy my, my little girl's two. So I don't, I, you know, stories aren't like super awesome with her right now, but when she's a little bit older, those of you with daughters that can read, put Fannie Lou Hamer in front of them and like cause them to be like her. Even if you're not a Christian, it's someone who stands up to justice and is right. wanting equality for people. Like I, I, I can't think of an argument that you would be against your your son or daughter being more like her. You just killed it though when you said that she that what was it that you say that again? I don't know what I just Th- said about, Katina. about black women being their villain. That was so powerful. Because- yeah, I, I want yeah, cuz back in that day who had the power were white men. And I think that you know, I mean just in general, I think men we we grow up we're in a society that women are just Obviously not like they're kind of looked down upon. I mean, they can vote and they have right. They have. There's still like inequality. inequality there, and to to say that it, there's not would be which is just foolish. But if you're in a room of men and there's one woman, the room's different. Things change, and I think if you're not a man who is, I don't want to say confident, but like if you're not just secure in who you are, then secure women are very scary to you. I would just say, like, if you're in a room and a woman is speaking, or especially a woman who knows more than you, which I'm in a lot of those rooms all the time, that that's not scary to a secure man. Right. And, and a woman who knows more than you that has had less than you, I think that's the biggest threat. I, mm-hmm. Would you say? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I mean, look at Stacey Abrams. This dude... You know, Chris Malone, this, uh, what is he, a UT Chattanooga football guy who called her Fat Albert. <laughs> like, just so threatened by powerful black women. Yeah, and it, it just reveals his cowardness and his insecurities. Um, I, I mean, I don't, there's not really another way, way to even say that. Like, you just have to be insecure and cowardly to. Yeah, it's like your view of yourself is entirely measured by how you are comparing yourself to others and your own 
white supremacy, male supremacy. So it's coming from these external factors rather than having like a confidence in who you actually are that then is secure enough for you to let other people be great. But I think that's the foundation of white supremacy is to basically, I think they, white supremacy exploits white women by using white women as the reason why we defend, you know, we have Mm -hmm. to defend white womanhood. We have to protect our women and daughters from black men and from the black cause. But then black women, it's like we are the the extreme opposite of that in a, a lot of in a lot of ways. White supremacy inflicts its terror on black women in ways that even black men don't even experience. And that's what I think about when I think about Fannie Lou. And even if I look in my own life and just as I look at people like Michelle Obama, Stacey Abrams, and just many black women who that's a normative that like that's a norm I've been uh, the verbal attacks from white men just this there's this thing about subduing black women mm-hmm. that rendering invisible right oh, but even subduing and owning like this whole I, I think that's a that's one of the foundations of white supremacy like black women came on slave ships to be bred like animals, to be raped, to be brutalized. And there I, I feel like that's the under like that's always the the undergirding of white supremacy. The ways in which black women are attacked and oftentimes are defenseless and voiceless. And when we have the nerves to stand up, though I mean just the way they be Fanny, that was an extra measure because she was a black woman. Mm-hmm. To raise her skirts, like that was an extra measure because, I mean, just the horrible names. And that's what black women feel today. Like the way they attacked Michelle Obama, like with all of her, with all of her education, oftentimes being the smartest person in the room, and she was a monkey and she was, you know, a man, the whole conspiracy theory. It's like, let's, we, they have to de- delegitimate, which I think speaks to the power of black womanhood and the bigger the threat, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> there's something there that is so threatening and intimidating that a woman would bring out this vile, disgusting behavior in the most powerful people group in America, the white man. It's, it's interesting. It, there's just one more thing. I'm sorry. We're, I know we're all over the place, but I just want to talk about just one quick thing. I know Brad's like, hurry no, up. No, you're fine. But where it talks about, I, I feel like it's important, you know, that for black women, you know, I lament because we're not able to rest in peace because there is no peace. And that it's going to be important that, like Fannie Lou was a forerunner for black women. There, We have many forerunners, but for the civil rights movement, I feel like she was a forerunner. And her legacy is that we, black women, we, we have to create spaces for us to be safe and for us to find rest. I mean, when you're dealing with all these microaggressions about your hair and your body uh, shape and, you know, your skin tone and how you're not the standard of beauty and how you're not the prize and having to be poked and prodded like Sarah Bartman. And, you know, we're always under the microscope. It's, It's just important that 
as we're resisting and as we're protesting and as we're speaking, as we standing, as we're standing, that rest is an act of resistance. We need to remember that rest is an act of resistance and we have to make and create safe spaces. White sisters, like, how can you help? Because a lot of times you will ask, help create safe spaces for black women. Think about If you've listened to this story about Fannie Lou, there are many black women like her. There are many black women whose names will never be mentioned. There are unnamed black women who died suffering. Like black girls, they would would start having babies in slavery as early as 12. And sometimes they would have 20-something babies before they died. And so I would just want to challenge you because I think Brad put it so eloquently and he talked about how he wants his daughters to, you know, to know who Fanny was and to honor her legacy. I think that ways that you can help would be to just serve Black women in a way that creates a space for them to rest, support them, believe them, hear them, see them, show us grace, and black women, like you, you, you gotta, you gotta. Sometimes we have to lay it down. Like you don't have to carry this whole thing yourself. And I'm not saying like Fanny was saying, you know, this little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. But let it shine through your rest. Let it shine through your tears. Let it, let it shine as you bathe yourself in lament and weep over how horrible. Like the black superwoman ideology is false. We're not Wonder Women. We're not Super Women. We are. We we. They say black don't crack. We we age on the inside. We get old and shrivel up on the inside. We die at an alarming rate, and we you know have infant mortality rates that are the numbers are so like we die during childbirth. Like the the statistics of 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 black female death and sickness. So you know, isn't it like four times the rate or something? Yeah, it's tremendous, and I just think that. When, when I think about Fanny being sick, or t- sick and tired of being sick and tired, hopefully, you know, most of us will not have to endure what she had to endure. And if we can carve out those spaces for us to care for ourselves, self-care, you know, people try to villainize it. But for people who are, live in the absence of self-care, who live under in a state of constant microaggression and scrutiny, self, self-care is a necessity and it's a, it's a human right. I mean, I even think as... Talking about black women caring for themselves, playing the long game as yeah. well as the short game. But like even as white men, like we need black women in our life. Like just like we say at the church, like we need everybody to play their part. And I can't be all who I am without other people mm-hmm. being all who they are. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, like I mean, in the Bible, the the hand can't say to the foot or the eye to the ear, "I don't need you." Amen. It's like other people have a perspective and are shaped by their life experiences in a way where you no one individual person from their life or perspective has the fullest picture of reality that they can have, and you need other people in order to be more than you could ever achieve on your own. And you particularly need listener. You need the people who are different in their life experience from you in particular. Because the people around you, it becomes like an echo chamber where if all your friends look like you and are your same gender, same upbringing, same background, 
you are stuck in a silo where you're not getting a more complete worldview. So you need the humility, particularly if you're a white man, because you are in a position where you nobody's going to impose their worldview on you. Like you have to have the humility to kind of lay down some of your pride and listen. And I mean, for for most black people, they understand white culture and black culture and can see both cultures because they're forced to grapple with white culture. But for most white people, they can just only stay in white culture and not be aware of any other culture. And even the black people who enter white spaces generally have to adopt white customs and language. And so white people don't often have, I think, the humility to enter into like getting an expanded worldview. But it's like biblical, it's logical, it's it's everything that you need more than just your life experience and your worldview. And and it's even like scientifically, people who are in relationships, mm-hmm. romantic relationships with someone from another culture are more likely to innovate, are more likely to entrepreneur, are more likely to succeed in life. There is something that just humans gain from being around and seeing the perspective of others. You grow in empathy and you're you're able to like learn to see your own former blindness in a way that is enriching. And I just want to press white men in particular, but really all of our listeners, to not just wait for somebody to come and give you their worldview, but to like start to have the humility to lay down your own pride and real and like pick up books and read and realize that you need what black women have. You desperately need some of like the the love, the compassion, the conviction, the perseverance through suffering, the things that black women have uh, bring to the table in America because of their story of all the all the suffering that they have gone through has built like a fortitude that they shouldn't have to carry but also that you need in your life and can benefit from. So and it, and it and don't believe the lie that it doesn't affect you. I don't I don't really need it. I'm not it is affecting you. I mean, it it not only are you not gaining all the things that you just listed that would be helpful for a human in general, but like it does something to you to not to be in your in your white bubble. Like it's doing something to you psychologically. It's doing something to you emotionally, spiritually. It has effect. It has negative effects just as much as getting out of that can have positive things. If well, that makes sense. And what's interesting, what, what I always say, and there's a saying in the black community, it's like you want our glory, but not our story. And there is no one more appropriated than the black woman. There is no one in... American culture and any other culture, our everything that we do is always monetized, appropriated and monetized by white people and other people. Like singing like we sing, cooking like we cook, dressing, you know, the fashion industry, how black women have influenced the fashion industry, you know, makeup, clothing, Hospitality, like you know, there's so many. You go on social media, and there's you know all these these white girls that so-called talk black and dress so-called dress black, and you know, I mean, look at the whole Kardashian family and how 
they have monetized blackness. They have they disfigured their bodies, their their natural bodies to have this look of blackness, you know, or what people think blackness is. They limit us to body parts. They limit us to this aesthetic that they want to obtain. And they want our glory, but not our story. And so find ways to amplify black women. You know, we even have white women that have monetized, you know, the movement of Black Lives Matter, that their effort to advocate for black lives is more significant and more important than the, the, the black women who not only write about it, sing about it, speak about it, talk about it, express, do art, but also live it. And that's the part that kills me. Like we, they, America has learned, and, and through colonization, the world has learned to want everything that black women have except the black woman herself. You want everything that she has. You want a black man. You want mixed babies because they're cute, which is so, so damaging. I mean, how many times have I heard white women, I, I, want, black, I want to be with a black man because I want mixed babies. Like, like they're animals, like they're puppies to be bred. You can't want, like you need to really check yourself. If you're so drawn to the aesthetic of blackness, you want to live in the black neighborhoods, you want to go to the black grocery store, you want to go to the poetry slam, you want to go to the black film festival, you want to go to all this black stuff, you want to be surrounded by your black girls, you want to sing like her, you want to look like her, you want to wear your earrings and, you know, make, make, speak the dialect. And take everything that our struggle has made us who we are, but then reject black women. And when it's time to really speak up for black women and really speak up, because a lot of times we'll see white people speaking up for black men because of police brutality. I've experienced police brutality, and I know many, Sandra Bland, Breonna Taylor, like we're more than just names that you throw up to show that you're down with the cause. If you're going to, you know, talk about it, be about it and do it in your everyday life. Like when you at work, there are people that will be the most down for the cause. But when they, you know, but when they're at work next to a black woman, will treat her like trash. The mic, we, there are so many white racists who don't know, who, who think that they are so pro-black but treat black women, specifically black women, like, like trash. Where black women are single, you know, at a large percentage because of mass incarceration and the carnage of what's been done in our family structure, in our nuclear family structures, and the criminalization of black men over marijuana and just any kind of offense, trumped up charges, and so black women are single at, at, at you know, at, a, at a, a significant rate. And white women will still seek out to be with black women as friends so that, like, introduce me some, to some of your, you know, your black men friends. Just, like, let me step on your neck. Let me overstep you. Let me, let, you know, babysit my kids. Be my friend. Be, my, be on my arm. Take this picture with me. But... No care, no concern. Mm-hmm. It's like consumption rather than love. Yes, very much. Consumeristic, yeah. And, and a lot of times, black people, we're on this journey. And so I see this like a lot where black girls will, they will finally crumble underneath that. I see so many young black women that 
candor to whiteness because that their very identity becomes whiteness because they don't know what else to do because they're, they, they have been taught by the world that they have no intrinsic value and that any black woman who is black woman who is owning herself, something is wrong. Like me, as I am, Katina, right now, like there's something wrong with me. Like that's too much. That's too much. That's too much blackness. I want to be, you know, I'm going to, you know, and nothing against because I'm wearing my hair straight today. But, you know, straightening your hair, covering up everything, bleaching your skin, all those things that we've had to do to be accepted. That has become an, an indoctrination of a generation of young black women to where they can't even be themselves. And then they, I see so many always, I see so many, so many times in this journey of how they, they cling to whiteness because they don't know what else to do. Because that's what, that's what the entire society has taught them to do. And then they start, we all, we're all on this journey and all of that stuff is like, it starts to crack. And you see, I see so many black, young black women that just crumble beneath that. It's, 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 it's sad. In the, in, the era, in, the, in the era of wokeness, that black women are still the collateral damage. So even the most woke, most woke white folks will inflict black women because everybody likes a funny black guy, but nobody wants, nobody wants a black woman who walks in confidence and self-awareness and who commands respect that she rightly deserves, who will lovingly say, no, actually, I really don't like that. Oh, why, why are you so angry? No, I, I literally am not angry. I'm just saying, you know, that's not how to love me. Like, I really, that's, don't touch my hair or whatever. You know, we, we're so easily, so quickly villainized. I'd love to end this episode with you reading Fanny's famous speech. Yeah. And then maybe if you're listening to this, might be a, if you're driving or something, maybe pause, wait till you get home and really listen to these words and think on them. And like, this is, again, aired nationally. Of course, it was like cut off by the president, but this is like a really important speech that we should all know. And I'd love for everyone to hear it. Yeah. The full audio, you can Google if you'd like, but the national televised version is cut off. I try to read this in Fanny's voice, but I don't do it justice. But Mr. Chairman and to the Credentials Committee, my name is Mrs. Fanny Lou Hamer, and I live at 626 East Lafayette Street, Ruleville, Mississippi, Sunflower County, the home of Senator James O. Eastland and Senator Stennis. It was the 31st of August in 1962 that 18 of us traveled 26 miles to the county courthouse in Indianola to try to register to become first-class citizens. We was met in Indianola by policemen, highway patrolmen, and they only allowed two of us in to take the literacy test at the time. After we had taken this test and started back to Ruleville, we was held up by the city police and the state highway patrolmen and carried back to Indianola where the bus driver was charged that day with driving a bus carrying the wrong color. After we paid the fine among us, 
We continued on to Ruleville, and Reverend Jeff Sonny carried me four miles in the rural area where I had worked as a timekeeper and sharecropper for 18 years. I was met there by my children, who told me the plantation owner was angry because I had gone down, tried to register. After they told me, my husband came and said the plantation owner was raising Cain because I had tried to register. And before he quit talking, the plantation owner came and said, Fannie Lou, do you know, did Pap tell you what I said? And I said, yes, sir. And he said, well, I mean that. Said, if you don't go down and withdraw your registration, you will have to leave. Said, then if you go down and withdraw. Said, you still might have to go because we're not ready for that in Mississippi. And I addressed him and told him and said, I didn't try to register for you. I tried to register for myself. I had to leave that same night. On the 10th of September, 1962, 16 bullets was fired into the home of Mr. and Mrs. Robert Tucker for me. That same night, two girls were shot in Ruleville, Mississippi. Also, Mr. Joe McDonald's house was shot in. And June the 9th, 1963, I had attended a voter registration workshop, was returning back to Mississippi. Ten of us was traveling by the Continental Trailway bus. When we got to Winona, Mississippi, which is Montgomery County, four of the people got off to use the washroom and two of the people to use the restaurant. Two of the people wanted to use the washroom. The four people that had gone in to use the restaurant was ordered out. During this time, I was on the bus. But when I looked through the window and saw they had rushed out, I got off of the bus to see what had happened. And one of the ladies said it was a state highway patrolman and a chief of police ordered us out. I got back on the bus and one of the persons had used the washroom got back on the bus too. As soon as I was seated on the bus, I saw when they began to get the five people in a highway patrolman's car. I stepped off of the bus to see what was happening and somebody screamed from the car that the five workers was in and said, get that one there. And when I went to get in the car, when the man told me I was under arrest, he kicked me. I was carried to the county jail and put in the booking room. They left some of the people in the booking room and began to place us in cells. I was placed in a cell with a young woman called Miss Ivesta Simpson. After I was placed in the cell, I began to hear sounds of licks and screams. I could hear the sounds of licks and horrible screams. And I could hear somebody say, can you say yes, sir, nigga? Can you say yes, sir? And they would say other horrible names. She would say, yes, I can say yes, sir. So, well, say it. She said, I don't know you well enough. They beat her. I don't know how long. And after a while, she began to pray and ask God to have mercy on those people. And it wasn't too long before three white men came to my cell. One of these men was a state highway patrolman, and he asked me where I was from. And I told him, Ruleville. And he said, we're going to check this. And they, they left my cell, and it wasn't too long before they came back, and he said, you are from Ruleville, all right. And he used a cuss word. 
And he said, we're going to make you wish you was dead. And I was carried out of that cell into another cell where they had two Negro prisoners. The state highway patrolman ordered, ordered the first Negro to take the blackjack. The first Negro prisoner ordered me by orders from the state highway patrolman for me to lay down on a bunk bed on my face. And I laid on my face. The first Negro began to beat me, and I was beat by the first Negro until he was exhausted. I was holding my hands behind me at that time on my left side because I suffered from polio when I was six years old. After the first Negro had beat until he was exhausted, the state highway patrolman ordered the second Negro to take the blackjack. The second Negro began to beat, and I began to work my feet. And the state highway patrolman ordered the first Negro who had beat to sit on my feet to keep me from working my feet. I began to scream, and one white man got up and began to beat me in my head and tell me to hush. One white man, my dress had worked up high. He walked over and pulled my dress I pulled my dress down, and he pulled my dress back up. I was in jail when Medgar Evers was murdered. All of this is on account of we want to register. We become, we want to become first-class citizens. And if the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party is not seated now, I question America. Is this America the land of the free and the home of the brave, where we have to sleep with our telephones off the hooks because our lives be threatened daily because we want to live as decent human beings in America. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you are looking for more information on what we discussed, take a look at the show notes or go to blackhistoryforwhitepeople.com. If you'd like to play a supportive role in the podcast, for $5 a month, you can vote for future topics, listen to unedited interviews, submit questions, and more. Check us out at patreon.com backslash blackhistoryforwhitepeople. We're also on Instagram and Twitter, so check us out on social media. Next episode, we'll be discussing politics with Justin Gibney from the And Campaign. We'll leave you with this quote from Miss Fannie Lou Hamer herself. When I liberate myself, I liberate others. If you don't speak out, ain't nobody going to speak out for you.